course, the pull of remembering back to the center of time, back to the center over and through and back by way of the middle again, spiritual pathways, a promise delivered, a navel formed by the crisscrossing lines tracing the adventures, the joys, the frights, highlighting the heart, emphasizing the soul, memorializing the memory itself, tracing the adventures, the joys, the frights, the hopes, the fears, the lines of the stars, passages, ribbons, spiritual pathways, land constellations, a promise delivered, ribbons, ribbons becoming bows, markings of sacred journeys traced over and over and over again. Corridors Our way of stitching back together that which in our utterly confused clumsiness we have torn all the way apart. Overstitch, understitch, crossstitch, backstitch. A way to repair, to apologize, to do over to extend our young hand in remorse, backstitch, overstitch, understitch, crossstitch, a heartfelt, prayerful way to repair, a hopeful way to repair, of threading back together, of coming back together, of stitching back together, that which we realize has always been meant to live as one. Carnivores Paradoxical kin, the ones who with a single leap take the lives of those so very close to us in order to feed themselves, in order to feed their young. And also the guardians of life, guardians of life all around us, of our kin who eat plants, of the plant kin themselves, and even of the rich and fertile soil which births them keepers of balance, teachers of elegance, puma, jaguar, panther, imposing reflections of our very own power, inviting us to retract, to fully retract our arms, to tread with the lightest of toes, keeping silence, holding reverence, a caress for the land with each step, a caress for the land with each purr. Puma, Jaguar, Panther, imposing reflections of our very own 
power inviting us to know the fullness of our most unabashed roar. When it's time to be known, when it's time to be present, when it's time to offer nothing but our most preciously primal protection. The Emerging World Project Studios recognizes that we occupy land in Los Angeles County originally and still inhabited and cared for by the Tongva, Tataviam, Serrano, Quiche, and Chumash peoples. We honor and pay respect to their elders and descendants, past, present, and emerging, as they continue their stewardship of the lands and waters in Los Angeles County. Welcome. This is the Emerging World Project podcast. What are you doing here? I'm Addison Brown. Today, I'm delighted to introduce you to an exceptional guest who has dedicated her life to making a positive impact on our planet, Beth Pratt. Beth is an acclaimed author, conservationist, and advocate. She is a true force of nature, channeling her passion for wildlife and the environment into transformative action. As the California Regional Executive Director for the National Wildlife Federation, she has led groundbreaking initiatives and tirelessly championed the cause of conservation. Her relentless commitment to protecting our natural world has earned her well-deserved recognition and respect among her peers. Beyond her impressive role at the National Wildlife Federation, Beth is an accomplished author who has captured hearts and minds through her writing. Her work not only educates and inspires readers, but also shines a light on the urgent need to preserve and restore our fragile ecosystems. From the pages of her books, she paints vivid pictures of our natural wonders, urging us to embrace a sense of stewardship and forge a harmonious relationship with the earth. Beth Pratt's advocacy extends far beyond the written word. Through her engaging presentations and impassioned speeches, she sparks a deep sense of connection between people and nature. Her ability to communicate complex environmental issues in a relatable and accessible manner has empowered countless individuals to join the fight for a sustainable future. In today's conversation, we'll have the privilege of delving into Beth's remarkable journey. We'll explore the formative experiences that awakened her love for wildlife, delve into the challenges facing our planet, and discover the innovative solutions she champions. In this time when the need for environmental stewardship has never been more pressing, Beth's work serves as a beacon of hope and inspiration. Through her writing, conservation efforts, and advocacy work, she continues to galvanize individuals to take action, reminding us all of our responsibility to safeguard the planet for future generations. 
Brace yourself for a thought-provoking discussion as we explore Beth Pratt's vision for a world where nature thrives and humanity and wildlife coexist in harmony. There she is. Hello. Hi, hello there. How are you doing? I am doing rather lovely today. Yeah, I love um I love a slow start and that's what I got today. So Oh good. Awesome. <laughs> I'm glad. <laughs> right? They come few and far between. How about you? I'm good, yeah. Um back uh today after about ten days on the East Coast for work, uh, so catching up a little bit, but it's good. So I just want to start off by thanking you um, for taking the time out of your schedule. And I also want to thank you for being so generous with your time. I've watched a lot of um, interviews with you and read a lot of um, stuff. And I just, one of the things that I really appreciate is somebody with your expertise and uh, commitment uh, also has the commitment to giving that information out to other people that may not be able to receive it so easily. So thank you oh, for that. Thanks. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, it's a labor of love. So thank you. <laughs> right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Okay. So I um, want to start off by asking you, what would you say is your earliest memory of your relationship or knowing that you had a relationship to the natural world? And where does that memory take you? Ooh, earliest memory. Um, boy, you know, I'd have to go back to actually two for sort of my earliest memory with the natural world. And I actually remember this. It, it surprises me that I was this young, but my mother confirms it. But I remember wanting to be outside and sneaking out of my bedroom window uh, one summer, this was uh, uh, outside of Boston, where we grew up in the suburbs, uh, because I wanted to walk around the backyard and I think look for frogs. Uh, I always had, we didn't have a lot of wildlife growing up in the suburbs of Massachusetts, or I should say big wildlife. Um, you know, we didn't have back then coyotes or bobcats, deer, uh, even raccoons. I don't think we ever saw one. What's great, if you go back to my neighborhood now, all of that is there. But at this point in the early seventies, it had been banished and we had frogs and turtles and birds and squirrels, but that was about it. And I just remember wanting to go walk around in people's backyards and look for things. Mm -hmm. And so I snuck out and of course, um, you know, terrified my mother once she found out was gone, but that (laughs) that's a pretty early memory about just that connection to the natural world. It seems, it sounds like it was just very natural. Right? Yeah, like, it's yeah. just like I'm going to go outside. Uh, right. I'm always happier outside. So yeah. right, no, I love that. <laughs> I love that. I often feel that that is um, the memory of our connection that we have to come back to. I think yes. that those memories lie deeply in mm-hmm. in humans, and a return to that is really what we're looking yeah. for. And it's hard. I I can't really think of a time I didn't have a connection to animals. Mm, you always mm. had I always had pets growing up, but also my earliest memories of either TV or books like The Wind in the Willows. And I'm mm. looking right now in my office at Frog and Toad or Friends. You know, mm-hmm, I have a, mm-hmm. a, a 
a book that I read in childhood. So there was always just that connection to nature and animals. I mean, I just can't remember a time without it. It's so beautiful. And it's beautiful that you've ended up um, using your life force to work in that, in that area. And I hate to split it up like that, but unfortunately it does feel that way because even people that I've noticed that people that are born into situations where there is wildlife, large or small, have no connection. And you wonder, you know, I don't want to say no connection, but no, um, uh, deliberate or intentional connection. And you wonder how that happens. And then you wonder about how people that are not uh, in areas and they are greatly influenced by their relationship to the natural world. So it's a, it's a complex understanding that yeah. I often contemplate, which brings me around to my next question and it has to do with spirituality. But I want to preface this with, um, something that sparked my desire to have a talk with you. And that was, I live near the Hollywood Reservoir. And I spend a lot of time in Griffith Park and know the history and all the wonderful stuff about uh, P-22. So I wasn't able to get to the live memorial, but I did watch the broadcast. And something that you said in passing, and it was very quick, you said, that you recognize a more spiritual aspect to your relationships. And I just wanted to know if we could talk a little bit about that because nation, nature often inspires a deep sense of spirituality. And I guess my question is, how has your connection with nature influenced your own, let's say, spiritual journey? Yeah, that, it is such an interesting question. You know, spiritual is is actually a word I don't, I'm not entirely comfortable with, I think, but I don't know mm -hmm. what else to use. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm not religious uh, since second grade when, you know, I grew up Catholic and my CCD teacher told me the dinosaurs couldn't have existed. And I was like, okay, mm -hmm. I'm out of here. Um, <laughs> Ouch. But, uh, yeah, I was like, no, uh, it just at some point became like, I, you know, somebody who is, a scientist and a student of science almost as far back as I can remember as well. Um, you know, that's been my guiding force. However, there is a, a spiritual, for lack of a better word, or soulful, or I don't know what word to use, part of me that recognizes there are, you know, grand mysteries to this this universe and and connections that are... I don't know, just energy and mm -hmm. thing, you know, things beyond, uh, you know, equations, I guess, for lack of a better word mm -hmm. uh, there. Um, and I think that has been my relationship with animals. And I've always tended to be on the more animal rightsy side of science, which of course science is now kind of, you know, backing up what all of us who had animals our whole lives knew, which is they do have emotions and they do, you know, mm. have a culture and language and, you know, and it, it seemed always very uh, arrogant of us to assume that, you know, we were on top. Um, but anyway, back to your question, I, I don't know what to call it, but there is a connection with life um, that is beyond science that for me, the natural world has always been there. And I think it, it, I will tell you a story about this campaign that might get it a little much, which is, you know, obviously we're trying to build this world's largest wildlife crossing. 
and that's a very scientific conservation outcome. Mm -hmm. But to me, I've also seen is just as important as part of this work is connecting people with, Mm -hmm. you know, we're connecting these landscapes for wildlife, but for me, connecting the psychological landscape for people to wildlife is also just as important as you saw from the celebration of life. I mean, that is not your usual environmental lineup, right? That mm-hmm, is a hip hop mm-hmm. artist from Watts and muralist. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, and we had the first P22 day we had in 2016, we had uh, this incredible group of students, second graders come and read letters to P22. It's a school we work with a lot. They were actually uh, a, a new class was at the celebration of life. And you get, you know, these kids, uh, 100% school of color, I think 30% are undocumented. And especially during the last administration, they, you know, would go home not knowing if their parents had been deported. And and when you think of, you know, that a second grader would have to face something Mm -hmm. like that, you know, the challenges for me in second grade were a boy didn't like me or I got a bad grade and nature and wildlife is what brought me psychological safety. It's what mm-hmm, what mm-hmm. brought me that peace and contentment and joy. And, and it always has. And, you know, I'd go to the woods and look at turtles if I was feeling bad. And one of the little boys read his letter. He's, again, second grade. And, he, and it was a longer letter, but he said, P22, I'm sorry you're sad and lonely. I know how you feel. Oh, my goodness. And, yeah. And we, you know, here's we're standing there listening. And of course, we all start bursting into tears. Uh, we have it on video. It's a it's a great moment. Mm. And it dawned on me that that was, you know, that's when I realized this work is deeper than just the science, that it is. It is about restoring that connection to the wild world that indigenous you know, people have had over time. Mm. Um, and it's always been closer to my relationship with wildlife. And I'm not sure what the word is for it, if it's spiritual, but it is, I guess, just recognizing there is a connection there and something bigger than ourselves and something that right. is essential to us that we've lost, I think. Right, right. I, I find this conversation often with scientists that I speak to, but I'm also recognizing something new that's emerging uh, within humanity in how we approach our complexity, right? So yeah. maybe this will help. So I kind of started off in two different paths. I first started off on a monastic path. I was almost certain I was going to be a Tibetan Buddhist nun. And it got diverted and I went into cooking. And I had always... Um, not wanted to eat animals. And I had no reason why. I didn't know why. It happened so young. It just came through. There was nobody around me that said you shouldn't eat them or anything. It was just a decision I'd made it as early as four or five. Uh, So I embarked on this path um, cooking. And that just ended up being a, you know, kind of a cluster because (laughs) everything that I really thought about uh, the way the world worked sort of went down the tube, so to speak. But what this did was showed me the complexity in the way that we are connected and and the way that we are imbricated in all of nature, right? And that is part of where my transformation happened. And I think that it feels as if people are on that pathway. The more I talk to scientists and I hear a little bit similar to the stories that you're telling, I'm starting to see that. And it it really warms my heart because it's going to require some new language for us. 
Right. Exactly. Not and only... you're right. It's it's new language. I mean, I think that is such a good point. And and I think P twenty two is such a good example of this new way of thinking. I mean, everything about absolutely. him has absolutely. been unprecedented, right? It's just been absolutely unprecedented that he's that he was allowed to stay in Griffith Park, that people rallied around him in the second largest city. And even absolutely. in his death in his death, he just set new norms that you had you know, the California Department of Fish and Wildlife um, director, Chuck Bonham, who's a, a friend, he's a, a great guy, but you just, you know, making an announcement in tears. I mean, right, in some right. of the states that aren't quite as far along in the sort of compassion towards animals, I mean, he was criticized for that. We all were for crying over a mountain mm. lion, yet <laughs> that's the new way. I mean, we should yeah. be approaching these decisions much more compassionately. Agreed. And and one could say that, you know, part of our culture of suppressing emotions or denying emotions is part of this emergence, right? Is a reconnection with our own emotions as human beings and accepting those and finding more spaces where those emotions are accepted, whether you're a scientist or a psychologist or a monk or a nun or whatever, right? An athlete or any, any path you may go down, which brings me to um, talking about transformation and your own transformation, which I sense happened really early on. But I want to talk about a little bit your book, uh, When Mountain Lions Are Neighbors. Um, it explores the story, of course, of P-22 in Los Angeles. Can you share with us some of the lessons that P-22 stories uh, have emerged and how can it inform our approach to what I'm saying is a new paradigm for wildlife conservation. Yeah. Yeah, it really was transformational for me. I think on the path of wildlife, you know, most of my career has been spent in national parks, both um, Yosemite, where I, I'm coming to you from my home, which is about 20 minutes from the Southwest Gate. Uh, I worked in Yellowstone. I've always been most of mm. my, well, I still am, but, you know, part, national parks are something that really captured my imagination mm. as a, a very young girl. And the idea that there were these places that were protected and wildlife could live in them. But it really was P-22 that took me down that both scientific and social transformation that, um, wait a minute, these animals um, actually don't just need to be in national parks or these protected areas. Mm -hmm. And indeed, both mm -hmm. scientific and socially, um, we need to rethink this because it's it's not working. You know, when the, the number one threat to wildlife worldwide is a loss of habitat, we can't see these places as off limits. Yet that is such a, a psychological bias that is mm. so hard to overcome. I mean, even mm. to this day, we get criticized for why would you build a wildlife crossing in a city? I mean, don't you, you know, we don't want, wildlife shouldn't be there. Uh, mm. So it was a real personal transformation for me that again, P22 really led. I remember having that moment in Griffith Park, like I read about in the book, you know, Jeff Sickich has taken me out for the day. He's since become a really good friend. We both laugh about this moment and he's, you know, showing me Griffith Park. I'd never been there. And I'm just, at first was aghast, like, whoa. Mm. God, he just doesn't belong. I mean, there's pony rides and cyclists and golf. Um, but then I, I, he's explaining to me all these challenges that P22 mm. faced and the other cats in the study. And I just, I remember to this day having that real epiphany of, well, wait a minute, if, if he's got no other choice, then who am I to judge? I mean, this mm. is good enough for him. And, 
And then it led me down the road of, of learning more about the science of that. And indeed that this whole, you know, scientific notion that these islands of habitat, which I was taught, you know, back in my 30 years ago in my, uh, you know, biology education that, you know, you put aside a national park and you keep the people in one place mm-hmm. and the animals in the other, that that actually was wrong, that you needed connected landscapes. So it, it was a real epiphany. And, uh, you know, it, to this day, it's, it's for some, it's hard. I, uh, I did a TEDx talk on this whole thing and uh, a good friend of mine who I've known for years, she's a, a scientist in Yosemite um she told me she's like oh my god i listened to that beth and it's everything uh i've worked against in my career we try to keep the wildlife and people separate and and she's like haven't you read studies that that you know wildlife and cities are more stressed and i said well i mean who isn't i'm more stressed in the city but if it you know it, it means you know they can't live i mean that to me is silly um Right. So yeah, it, I think it's it's gotten a lot more acceptance. I just came back from DC, the International Urban Wildlife Conference. So I'm happy we're we're looking at this new both scientific paradigm of wildlife needs human spaces, but Beautiful. also this social tolerance, which I think people have spoken. I mean, I I see such a transformation since I was uh, a kid in how people look at wildlife um and animals look at blackfish look at you know i mean right. we really are we really are reckoning with past mistakes in a way that to me is encouraging i don't think we're quite there but right we at least i think both scientifically are reckoning with it and also ethically you know reckoning with we need to look at wildlife differently and animals differently right and and our place our place in the web uh somebody told me a story about some maps that she had witnessed and she was she was uh doing some work with the koji tribe and they showed her these i think it's a koji tribe i could probably be incorrect but anyway they showed her these maps and somebody that was part of that group that was from the north america said oh i I really want these maps i want to use these maps and somebody in the tribe said these are not for you so there's a place like these are for the birds. This yeah. is where birds go. So what I got from that story is this understanding that there is a place for us. And part of our, as we, as we sort of move into whatever we're moving into is recognizing our place in this web and, and offering ourselves restraint and understanding that that restraint is going to be for our benefit too. not only our survival, Right. Because there is the there is the possibility that we, too, will go extinct with all of this. But that restraint will also offer to us that beauty, that wonder and that comfort that most of us are looking for that we find in when we're in nature. But it it, there has to be restraint. We have to there's I'm sure that you know this because I don't know it again. I'll probably need to be corrected. But about the those AV uh, motorcycles that are are driven around in the desert and how that dust goes north and covers the mountain, which causes the mountain snow to melt sooner, which causes the birds to come earlier, which, you know, disrupts the whole cycle. And then you look at that as as recreation, human beings, recreation. 
Yeah, it's a really good point that I, I think, you know, I was just in, in, in D.C., as I said, giving a talk at the Urban Wildlife Conference, and I had a blissful few hours. I almost never have this to mm-hmm. uh, walk around the Natural History Museum, and I hadn't been there since I was a kid. And they had mm. a great exhibit on human impacts mm. to wildlife and our natural world. And we assume it's a modern thing. It's not, you know, I mean, I think indigenous people obviously had a different relationship and in some respects, a more respectful relationship towards wildlife, but they had an impact too. You know, uh, mm-hmm, you go back a mm-hmm. thousand years, they had an impact on the environment. Uh, there's some theories, they caused some mass extinctions of some species and, um, you know, going back a hundred thousand years or so. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. I think that it's something about the human race or species that I think sets us apart in not a good way. And that we seem to, since the beginning, have an inordinate impact on our environment. And I think that's something we need to reckon with much like, you know, and we're not, I think that's where like the evidence is all before us yet. We're Mm. still, you know, business as usual. So I think there's something very human about this, you know, impacting the natural world in a way other species don't and thinking we are also immune from consequences. I mean, the pandemic mm-hmm. was such a great example mm-hmm. of us mm-hmm. thinking we are immune from national natural laws. Right. And, you know, I just remember thinking when when folks wouldn't mask up like or even saying I can't mask up. It's you know, I have a phobia or something. Well, that's true. And I'm sympathetic, but like viruses don't care. Right. I right, mean, you know, right. we and looking at, I guess, maybe as somebody who's a, a student of, of wildlife and watching their re- re- resiliency and what they have to go through. And we couldn't even deal with a lockdown you know, mm-hmm, for six months mm-hmm. where, you know, you look at animals who lose their homes in a minute and somehow rebuild. Right. There's a resiliency or a to the natural world and a that we or, you know, an acknowledgement of natural laws that I, I think we just also try to ignore. And I think Mm -hmm. it's going to be our undoing. I mean, I'm not a doomsayer, but we are just marching forward. I mean, I was just on the East Coast with the smoke, you know, I mean, and I live Mm -hmm. in California and that smoke is is now the summer season. I've had to evacuate three years in a row. We have, Mm -hmm. you know, some higher temperatures. I just read a report about the ocean temperature being about, you know, the highest they've ever seen. Yet we just keep marching forward without changing. And I think that's where we kind of differ. Wildlife doesn't, I think, um, behave in a way that spells their own doom. <laughs> you know? Right, right. Um, so there is there is an over, I guess we could say an over intellect in play. Yes, maybe that's a good beings. way to put it. So yeah. the other half of that, right, we could call it, I don't won't call it spirituality. We don't want to use that word today. Oh, I mean, you can use it. I just, <laughs> just kidding. I got to come up with that word, uh, but I'm not sure what it is. I'm struggling. <laughs> to be honest, I'm really struggling yeah. with new language. I'm, I'm really yeah. aware of, of the need to recognize and create and listen to new language. So I do appreciate you saying yeah. there's Reference sustainability. Reference the word that comes closest to me for my relationship with the natural world and wildlife, but it's not quite it either. I think when you say spirituality, people tend to uh, then go down the road to religion a little bit. Right, you know? right. Yeah. And yeah, and it's not, to me, it's not at all. That's yeah. like one of the, the tenets in Buddhism is like, well, this is not even a religion. So we yeah. could just, you know, go from there. But let me let me not go down that track. Okay, yeah, we okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I want to go down a different, a different yeah. rabbit hole here. Um, 
right. Dystopia. Uh, let's have a through topia. Let's try that. Um, okay. <laughs> so yeah. Okay. So there are over, our overdeveloped intellect seems to, is what I sense, is what I sense and what I feel a lot. Um, and the question is, you know, how do we relate and how do we communicate and how do we get as much involved in other people's lives, so to speak, as wildlife conservationists with a new paradigm lurking around the corner if we want to survive and let people know that it's really up to them to move into this new consciousness, this new understanding of how to live in the world? Yeah, boy, that's a good question as to how to do that. I mean, I think there's sort of two tracks to that. And, you know, I always like to stay with the first one, which is just about facilitating in a mm -hmm. real positive way connections to wildlife. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Or it's not even facilitating. I think everybody has a really, or most people have a, a relationship with wildlife. It's about uh, empowering those connections mm -hmm. and recognizing those connections. And I, I think the worst thing science and conservation groups like my own did decades ago, which was, you know, you know, can't anthropomorphize. You can't have a relationship mm -hmm, with wildlife. Mm -hmm, it's unscientific. Mm -hmm. Well, that has done more damage than anything I can think of. Of course, we need relationships with wildlife and we need to recognize that, you know, um, the worth of an animal is not on a scientific paper, you know, they are beings. Uh, what did Henry Biston, who wrote uh, The Outermost House about a year uh, on Cape Cod in the 20s is one of my favorite nature books. He, I'll, I'm going to butcher this quote, but, you know, they are <laughs> fe fellow prisoners of the, the travels mm. and the splendor of earth. Mm. And, and that's how I see wildlife. They are fellow yeah. beings. Yeah. And so how do we get people to that place? Well, it ain't a scientific paper. Now I'm saying that as a scientist, science is important. Science right. is um, how we, you know, how we rigorously solve problems. We, you know, like the wildlife crossing, we wouldn't know that these mountain lions um, would have gone extinct if it wasn't for science. We wouldn't know how to build a wildlife crossing if it wasn't for, but despite reams of scientific papers, many wildlife species has gone extinct. And that's because that takes public will and caring. So right. I think what I, what I try to largely is, you know, even with all my doom saying, um, is to, to approach it from a very positive standpoint, which is like the P22 celebration of life. You just, mm -hmm. you recognize these connections and help empower them. And, and we have people who work, you know, work to protect or work to protect P22 and, and other wildlife who, P22 was their first entry into the wildlife world. They had never supported an environmental cause before. So I think it is about, you know, helping that imagination get to love is the first approach to my work. But when I have to, don't, don't poke my bear. Uh, you know, sometimes <laughs> we have to get into, you know, policy and enforcement. Um, cause I think there is a subset of people who are just never going to get there that way. Right, so right. that's where I think that, you know, that the teeth to, to, um, wildlife, whether it be enforcement or policy or whatever is, is also there. But, but to me, you know, even the crossing, we knew that was going to be a long game you know, mm -hmm, changing mm -hmm. people's hearts and minds. And, mm -hmm. and I think that's how we have to do it for conservation. It's not going to happen overnight, but we, we have to, we have to get at the imagination. My good friend, Malcolm Margolin, who, you know, he was a uh, head of heyday. He um, worked with him on when mountain lions are neighbors. Um, 
he said something to me once, which has always stuck with me, despite what I, how we opened this program about. Uh, he's like, you know, the education system has never been mm. one much to change minds. It's, you know, and, and look at the age we're living in where facts don't matter. It really is the mm -hmm. heart and the imagination. And he said, religion's actually done a better job at getting people to change their behavior, you know. Right. Um, but I, you know, substitute religion for imagination or love. And I, you know, he, that always stuck with me. That's that's how you change minds. It's not. I absolutely agree. Yeah, it's not the I facts, absolutely you agree. Know? You need I the mean, facts. You need those as a foundation. But if you're going to change people's behavior, um, you know, if the facts are on your side, I should say, then yes, it's 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 something much deeper than than that. I, I agree wholeheartedly. Um, imagination and curiosity. I know if I yeah. throw out, you know, very specific questions that are going to charge the curiosity of another person, then I can see some movement. You know, I can look in their eyes and I can actually see some movement there. And then there, like you said, there are other folks that, you know, are only going to respond to legislation or, you know, mm -hmm. so, or maybe not signs, you know, don't bring your dog and they bring your dog anyway. But um, <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah, we'll get exactly. to trails later. Yeah, but, yeah, I, we, yeah. Let's talk trails <laughs> at some point. I would like to talk it. Yeah. It okay. is. A, we are a bit of a mixed bag as humans. Mm -hmm. I mean, and it must seem like when I when I want to stay optimistic about our survival, I think it is going to be about a tipping point. Right. So we're at this this tipping point towards annihilation, extinction, or then that maybe a tipping point in consciousness towards emerging into something we don't even know what that is. Mm -hmm. Okay, so um, because I know I wanted to talk about the Wallace-Annenberg Wildlife Crossing from an innovative solution to mitigate the impact of urban development on wildlife, and I know that you are deeply involved in that project, so if you could share with me what that process has been like um, what your envision um, that how that will shape the future of conservation efforts and ah how is the wisdom of indigenous peoples included in this project? Yeah, boy, all good questions. I mean, it's it's been uh, astounding. I'm still a bit dizzy and still a bit exhausted. Mm. That you mm. know, it's been a long haul. I've been working on that since 2012. Uh, others on our team. For decades, like the National Park Service, they had, you know, been doing the science and the research around that much longer. Same with the Santa Monica Mountains Conservancy, who had the, you know, the foresight to preserve the land. We wouldn't mm. have a crossing without it for, you know, decades before. So, but yeah, it's an amazing time. I mean, we were told, I was told, I was told this in the news. I was told this in the public that we were crazy. We were idiots mm. for trying to do something like this. But, uh, you know, for me, it didn't matter. Um it was a moral imperative once I heard that this mountain lion population was going to go extinct. Um, you know, I look at the polar bears sometimes and feel helpless. I mean, I, if it was me, mm. I would just toss them some salmon, but I don't have that power. Mm. Um, but here was something we could do something about once, you know, I found out what the problem was and that, oh, this is all that stands in the way. Money to build a crossing? Well, heck, that's that's <laughs> Um So it's been, I will, you know, like any visionary big ambitious thing it was not easy at all uh it was challenging there was a lot of uh desperate and tough moments over the past uh, 12 years for me but boy here we are and it is just so emotional to drive by mm. that um site and see 
the construction going up. And you, if you can't drive by it, you can go to 101wildlifecrossing.org and we have a live camera on it. So, um, but I think the lesson learned there, um, a couple things. One is, you know, don't shy away from big things, especially if you're on the side of right, right? We had the science on our side. Right on. Yes, absolutely. Uh, my favorite movie about leadership, not just because Brad Pitt's in it, but uh, Moneyball, <laughs> which I think encapsulate what it takes to be a leader, which is, you know, he stood firm on his vision. He wasn't even 100% sure it would pay off. Yet, despite being threatened with being fired, with the press lambasting him, with his own team, some of them quitting and doubting him. He kept going, at least to see it through. And I think that's what you kind of have to do um, is just somebody needs to take, you know, put the blinders on and and be a champion. And I think that was my role. But, you know, it took a village. Every team member had their own role. And um, mine was also being willing to carry a cardboard cutout of P22 around and mm -hmm, talk about mm -hmm. his dating life. Right. Uh, so, <laughs> People can um, relate to that. Yeah. And, and what has been really, to me, encouraging is it's not just about the one crossing. I think what P22 and the Wallace Annenberg Wildlife Crossing have done is inspire more. It has really elevated mm. the cause of connectivity and what it mm. means for wildlife and that these projects are possible. I mean, it was named, I'm still blown away by this. It was named one of the 50, number 15 in the 50 most influential projects of 2022. Beautiful. Up there with the Human Genome Project in, in the James Webb Telescope. And it's beautiful. Um, because it is, you know, again, these things, wildlife crossings are nothing new, but to put them down in, you know, one of the most urban areas in the world, it's going to be the largest because the 101 is, you know, such a formidable freeway. So it's already inspiring others. I was just back East talking at the International Conference on Ecology and Transportation as well. Um, Wallace Annenberg herself, who's just amazing. Um, uh, as we, you know, we launched at the Celebration of Life, this new initiative I'm leading to raise 500 million uh, to build more. And mm -hmm. uh, she put up uh, the first 10. Governor Newsom and Secretary Crowfoot, I'm so fortunate mm -hmm. to, to mm -hmm. live in the state. They want to do more, right? And mm -hmm. not only the philanthropists and the government, but the public is now very um, supportive of these projects. So I think, you know, those all line up in a way that to me is really wonderful because it's not going to be just about the one. It's going to be about more. Right. Um, and into your last question about the indigenous knowledge, you know, that to me, part of that, again, representing different views on wildlife and I uh, you know what they, uh, what we work uh, with one individual, especially, but more, but I've become good friends with, which is Alan Salazar. Um, he's a Chumash storyteller, also has some other affiliations. And he was one of the people, there were many who led the private burial. I was really honored to be invited to of P22. Uh, he was also at the Celebration of Life, but we invited him to one of our earliest design meetings. And I think that, you know, what, you know, indigenous knowledge brings is, you know, a different voice to this. I think, mm -hmm. like we talked about at the beginning, it's their relationship with animals, I think, is more akin to my own and, and at least approaches on the spectrum what we should be getting back to, their relationship to the natural world, things like that. Mm -hmm. But I think, mm -hmm. you know, they also bring that connection to the word we can't figure out you know spirituality Agreed. right the mm -hmm. first uh, design meeting we had a uh, design <laughs> workshop it wasn't the first design meeting we did a design workshop in 2018 2019 when caltrans had gotten to 30 percent designed and 
we invited all those voices, including Alan. And he stood up uh, around the end of the workshop and told the story, which is uh, of the Chumash, is uh, one of their creation myths, of how they told about a rainbow bridge that extended from the Channel mm. Islands to the Santa Monica Mountains. And that was the future of their people. They crossed the rainbow bridge mm. to the mainland. And the whole room, which is filled with, you know, scientists and transportation engineers and you know all these people who are not really storytellers was just silent and one of these bridge engineers raised their hand and said oh my god we should make the the concrete rainbow colored and you know it really hit me again that you know unfortunately we were not able to do that but um but you know it's it's stuff like that you know that that connection in time and how Again, in some respects, this is not just a problem of the modern age. I think it connects right. us all right. to a humanness that's in all of us and that extends back 10,000 years, 20,000 years, 100,000 years. And I think to me that that's really powerful. And one of the things I appreciate um, Alan and, and other indigenous leaders we work with bringing is that, you know, that actually is more about connecting us together rather than, you know, um, to the wildlife itself. I, I agree. I, I've often talked to people about, you know, where they think the separation happened. That seems to be the, the, the word we're using, this separation that humans think that they're separate from nature. And of course, we could go to religion. That's a little too easy, but something else. And it feels like people are willing, I, I think I'm repeating myself, but it does feel like people are willing to talk about that. You know, I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall to see a room full of scientists, you know, listen to the wisdom of indigenous folks. And I, I use the word wisdom because this this information, this knowledge often comes from something that they can't even explain, right? So we're trying to explain, well, I read this book and I did this and blah, 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 blah. And then they're receiving some information that's unexplainable, that has allowed life to exist in a certain way, much more harmonious than it does now in our extractive Yeah, but you know, I, mentality. I wonder, don't you see, that this is where I land these days. I think, you know, all cultures have things to teach us, especially mm -hmm, indigenous, mm -hmm. but I, you know, I'd go back a hundred thousand years. I don't think, I, I think it's something human, no matter what culture. Mm -hmm. And I think it gets at, um, numbers, right? I mean, you do look at indigenous cultures oh. who did not listen to nature and, you know, starved to death because, you know, you know, they overextended, right? You think of, um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you look at, um, so what, you know, that's why, like, I, I, I think to find this solution, we have to both listen to different voices like indigenous, right. but also respect this is a human thing. And I do think, right. especially as Absolutely. numbers get higher, it's a power thing. There's something in us as humans that think, you know, at some point in every culture or, you know, if the wrong leadership takes over, thinks we can, you know, I mean, I'm pointing to right. our, own, our own society right. too. So what is it, uh, you know, where we at times in history going back, you know, even before, modern religion, even before, um, where we just lose that connection and then, you know, get to that arrogance that we can control things that has never worked out well. If you look at the, the history of human, you know, uh, humans back probably, 
even further than 100,000 years, right? Um, so right. I think I think that we have to be honest with ourselves. There is something in us humans, uh, absolutely, no what culture that gets us there. Um, Indeed, the crisis and, is in humanity. Period. Yes, the crisis to me. is in humanity, and, and yep. to romanticize that there was somehow a time mm. when this wasn't a th- not true, know, wasn't happening. Then yeah. it kind of lets us off the hook, you know. It's right. something, and I mean, I thought. Um, you know, God as a young kid, I remember watching uh, 2001 and not understanding it fully, but then of course coming back to it as an adult. And I think he nailed it right there. That first scene where they pick up the stick, you know, and Mm. it's, it's something in that control and power that not everybody has, but, but that is in, you know, some of us. And when those people become leaders and, you know, it, it steers us a little wrongly. So, um, yeah, I, I don't know what the magic answer is, but I think for me, that's that's important to keep in mind if we're going to f- solve a solution is that, um, you know, it is it is in all of us. And mm-hmm. so how mm-hmm. do we recognize that and, you know, somehow look at a system that hasn't existed, really? Maybe pieces right. of it, right? You, you know, we could right. pull pieces of it, but, but that idealized where we did not have that potential. I mean, I can't find context in, in history, you know, human history for it. Right. Right. Dan Flores has a new book out about um, uh, almost this. I haven't read it yet. So I'm very interested in his theories um, about that. Our, I think he starts in North America with our relationship pre-European and then gets into the European relationship of of to the natural world and wildlife and, you know, sort of trying to chart that. I'm very interested to see where he. Yeah. Um, yeah. That sounds it fascinating. Is, it is intriguing to me. Like what is it about us as humans that, that we've always thought has um, made us invulnerable or sets us apart a little bit. I don't know. <laughs> Why do we want to kill ourselves? What yeah, is going I, I, on? I don't know. I really don't Are know. you that unhappy? Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, I appreciate you uh, allowing us to go off a little scientific, you know. Yeah, no, I'm, no I think about these things. I mean, I think about these things, especially today, because we are seeking answers. And mm-hmm. I do think we have to be careful. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, again, I think we have to be careful to balance the science of these things with the, you know, the more psychological aspects, for lack mm-hmm. of a better word. Mm-hmm. I think we need to recognize it's not going to come from any one culture or individual. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a new paradigm that we as humans have not figured out yet. And I think that's, yeah. that is what's important. Can we? Sure. I, you know, but we haven't yet. So how do we get there? And I think it is being honest about or reckoning with um, what it means to be human. I really yeah. do. Yeah. yeah, it does. It really does that that's it feels like the number one thing is mm-hmm. is having the courage to to look that way and i yep. see i see that happening a lot oh wow this conversation has taken us down pathways that i could not have anticipated and as a result we are going to make this a two-part interview with beth pratt So I encourage you to come back for part two and also take heed to what Mark has to say next. 
Until then, be the light in the room. I'll see you on the flip side. Thank you for tuning in to the Emerging World Project podcast, What Are You Doing Here? We hope you enjoyed this episode as much as we enjoy creating it for you. If you found value in today's episode, we would love for you to take a moment to leave us a review on your preferred podcast platform. Your feedback not only helps us improve, but also helps others discover our show and join our community. So please don't be shy. Leave us a review and let us know what you think. We read every review and your input truly means the world to us. To find out more about what the Emerging World Project is up to, head on over to emergingworldproject.org.